Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline, a United Ireland series where we talk to brilliant journalists about their work. Una here, and we're about to have a conversation with, no joke, one of my favourite writers. Patrick Frayne is a features writer with the Irish Times and author of a new collection of what I suppose you could broadly categorise as personal essays um, called, Okay, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea. Patrick's writing in the Times like it's often the subject of a lot of screenshots um, in WhatsApp groups shared by friends and there's different readers pointing out particularly hilarious lines, um, you know, with things like Patrick Frayne has done it again and this is just so hilar- hilarious. How does he keep being this funny? These are things that everyone kind of says about his work. His brand of surrealism, absurdism, hilarity, um, like it draws comparisons I'm about to make, I guess, with people like Marina Hyde or Charlie Brooker or Miriam Lord or Maeve Higgins or David Sedaris. But what permeates his work for me always is compassion and heart, no matter who or what the subject is. Patrick, welcome to Byline. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Are you sufficiently flattered? Yes, I'm more than sufficiently flattered. It doesn't take much. <laughs> and that was great. Well, let's... um start from the start uh where are you from and what first drew you to writing or when did you first become excited about writing so i'm from cork originally and we moved to kildare when i was around six or seven because my dad was in the army and at that point i thought i wanted to be in the army until i was in my teens and realized that i was a fey foppish sort of person and would not fare very well in a militarized environment and I started getting into arty stuff and music in particular. Um, so I always had an interest in writing and did bits of writing in that kind of weird pre-internet way where you'd kind of like, even when we had bands, we'd do zines and we'd write weird stories. And, uh, like we had a, in the early days of my band, we had a weird mythology we used to write about in a zine we'd put out occasionally. Um, and I guess journalism was at the back of my head as something, uh, a, a slightly more realistic professional thing I might be able to do, um, which I would have started doing. I did a journalism course in DIT after college. I went to college and did English. And I was still really kind of consumed with music and the band. So I kind of did bits of freelancing on and off, but never really focused on it or was particularly passionate about it until like after my band years, at which point kind of in 2006, I really focused on journalism seriously and kind of decided I'd make it a career. Can you remember leaving kind of the zines aside? We'll get back to that later. Can you remember the first article you got published anywhere? I got a piece published in the Irish Times in 1997 or 98, I can't remember exactly. Um, 
because they had set it as <laughs> they said get bumper somewhere in the course they did in DIT, and I was living like I did for years on Dorset Street, and it was the start of Parnell Street becoming a very multicultural place, and it, there was an African shop that opened, and I interviewed the guy in the shop about the shop. Um, so that would have been the first, that w- and that was the last time I was in the Irish Times for like 15 years, because um, <laughs> I went off and did other things. Um, like the first piece I wrote where I guess some of the voice I have now is evident was I wrote a piece for in Dublin um, about, actually, sorry, it was D-Side. I wrote a piece for D-Side about uh, Jury's Cabaret. I went along and I just did like a 2,000 word review and they published the whole thing because they, I think they thought it was funny. Um, and that was probably about 98 or 99. Um, but, but I was really consumed with music and the band. And I was, I, I mean, in retrospect, I think it's a good thing, but I was not particularly focused on career in any realistic way until I was in my 30s. Mm. Tell me about that band era then, um, I guess, particularly like NPR, MPB, not, I always say NPR, NPR not, yeah. band is not called NPR, a National Prayer Breakfast, um, because it was a band, like you say that you like had this mythology about the band. For me, from the outside, it did feel like a band that was, you know, like very avant-garde and kind of like, not the music, but like the vibe was like kind of impenetrable. Like it, w- it was just kind of a, a mad kind of fixture, I guess, in in Dublin on the fringes. Yeah. So there was a great scene. There was a great music scene in Dublin that, and, and I know like I'm 45 now, so this could be the nostalgia bubbles in my brain, but there was a really healthy DIY post-punk. And I mean post-punk in the kind of ideological sense. Like a lot of the bands didn't sound particularly like punk bands, but they were all influenced by that punk DIY mentality where you you weren't trying to. And I think things before that scene in the 80s post U2 was very much about getting signed to major labels. And I think after that scene in maybe the mid noughties, it became very much focused on major labels again. But there was this kind of great period when I think the best bands in Dublin, like bands like the Redneck Manifesto and the Jimmy Cake, seemed like the last thing on their mind was trying to get signed to a major label. Um, and we were somewhere in between. We, we tried to have our cake and eat it, but we were very influenced by Dara, the bass player, and our band was really into bands like Crass, like these really kind of anarcho-feminist punk uh, 80s bands that kind of were never, never wanted to be part of the mainstream. Um and we were like I and me and Paul were always just into kind of weird arty indie music, and and together we just kind of decided we, I don't think we quite fit any particular scene or sound. And when you listen to our early stuff, it's all over the place. In a way, I now found find endearing, but I think at the time we even ourselves found problematic. Um, and uh, we just, I guess, I think there's this great thing that can happen if you're a lucky person and. And I, I'm a privileged person, like I, I guess I am in loads of ways, like where you can be surrounded by other well-meaning, creative people in your 20s. And you create this little world for yourself. And it was before social media, so you didn't really know about other enclaves or islands of young people doing their thing. 
you, you never felt competitive about, about anything because you had no idea what anyone else was doing anyway. You didn't know whether what you were doing was insane or normal. And I love that. And I wish every young person could have the opportunity to do that. And I wish every young person could have the opportunity to fail. Like uh, I'm a white, middle-class, straight man, and we have loads of opportunities to fail. And it's like I kind of, in retrospect, I look at it and I go, okay, if I came from a different background with less advantages, um, would I have been able to do, would I have been able to fail so much in my 20s? At the, and I don't, it's because it's not even, there's this kind of mythology about failure now that comes from Silicon Valley, where it's not really failure. It's just a step on the road to success. And you can only really say that if you're privileged in the first place, I think. Mm. Um, so I benefited from that in my 20s. And I wish every young person could have that. Just decide I'm going to be in a band. And I'm going to put out records. And when people start talking about pensions and the future, I'm going to put my hands in my ears and go, na, 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 na. Um, uh, and so, it, like, I mean, at the t- like, it's kind of interesting. Like, I've got that spin on it now. Like, when I hit my early 30s, uh, I was kind of worried that I'd thrown away my future on this and that I needed to kind of get a real job. Um, and I always did love journalism and I always did love writing. And actually even more now, the more I've been doing it and the more I've been reading around, like good journalism is phenomenal. And it's something that uh, we really need in our culture. Um, and I think people are waking up to that again. Mm-hmm. There's so much um, really funny and bizarre and thoughtful stuff about being in a band and that kind of gang and also the scene and and the things that you're just doing to do them in in the book. But I'm interested in how you made that switch between like somebody who was gravitating towards a a literally regimented structure like the army. I know your dad was in the army to, to, to this more like, you know, as you say, like anarcho-feminist punk DIY uh, scene that is absolutely without rules and and without constraints. How do you think that happened? Well, because there are rules and constraints. And this is the amazing thing that is actually so funny and again kind of endearing about those scenes is they're filled with rules and constraints. And I, for me now, it was really interesting writing the book because I'd never really, I'd never had an opinion column and I'd never had a column where I wrote about myself personally. Um, so I, I actually worked out a lot of things writing the book. And one of the things I've realized that I don't say explicitly because I'm the type of annoying person that doesn't like to say things explicitly. But one of the things I realized was that when I was younger and we'd moved around a bit, I was really craving a gang and friends. And I think when I wanted to be in the army, it was like I was reading Battle and there'd be like, these battle comic was like an IPC comic from the eighties, uh, war comic, very, um, dodgy politics in retrospect. But, you know, there was all these like things about characters called Sarge and there'd be like this group of the squad of 10 guys and they'd be like fighting the baddies. And I'd be going, I'd love to be in a squad like that. And, and, th- but then I had the same feeling when I watched the monkeys, which I loved as a kid, you know, I'd love to be in a weird household band like the monkeys are in. So um, I I don't think there was, I think um, psychologically there wasn't, obviously politically there's a huge difference to wanting to be in the army and wanting to be in some sort of anarcho-punk indie band. But psychologically it was like a desire to 
be in a gang and belong with a group of people. Um, and again, it's part of the reason why I I now am so glad I spent my twenties in band. Is this your pitch to enter the TikTok house? <laughs> yeah, I would totally. I would totally love to be in that TikTok house. Hello, fellow kids. I would say with my backwards baseball cap. Yeah. <laughs> Um, as you say, like it was in your kind of early 30s where you committed to a career in journalism and you say, you're saying you're kind of worried about, as I think, you know, most people worry about all their lives, like yeah. what the fuck have I been spending my time doing? Have I thrown everything away? What am I doing? Etc. Kind of a daily disposition for a lot of people, I think. Um, yeah. How did you go about then saying like you had done some articles you'd done some free freelancing I guess you could characterize it as how did you how did you make the decision then and how did you go about it I'm going to be a journalist as a career man so I definitely felt like I was starting from scratch because I didn't really have any reputation and nobody knew like knew my work um I had gone back to college to do music for a while which I loved as well and then I was working as a care worker uh, to make ends meet and it was when I I kind of realized actually writing the thesis in college that I really wanted. I wrote a thesis about Cornelius Cardew, the uh, weird um, Maoist composer. And I got really into the writing of it, just the actual writing. And I realized I really wanted to be writing. And so I started, it was 2006 really, and it was kind of just before the Celtic Tiger came grounding to a halt. So I basically spent the Celtic Tiger era with no money, which is also, it's kind of a, I now realize it was it's unusual for someone of my age, because uh, a lot of people my age managed to have good jobs in that period. But when I, when I kind of came out, while I was being a care worker, I was pitching articles um, to places like the Tribune and to, and I realized early on that there was more freelance work in business journalism. So I ended up uh, doing a lot of business features, which is kind of, it's kind of weird to me now. Um, but I just pitched everywhere. Like I just continuously pitched. I'll tell you the one thing the band gave me and the one thing I really, I don't think people who haven't been close to the arts realize is that the hardest working people out there are in rock bands and they're working as artists and they're the best with a budget and they're the best at getting things done on a shoestring. Um, and we were a hardworking band. So when I actually uh, started working in journalism as a freelancer, um, and this is something I say to younger people all the time, you, if you are reliable, Neil Gaiman says this in some, in some speech, if you're reliable, pleasant to work with, um, and good, you'll get work. And what I was surprised at when I started pitching stuff in 2006 was that people were really surprised that all my stuff came in on time to Wordlink. Mm. And having worked for years in bands, I always thought that we were kind of, I always thought that people in bands were meant to be kind of ropey and uh, work shy, but actually everyone I know in a band worked really, really hard. And actually a lot of people with real jobs were a bit slackery. Um, so the first, I started to get work. Um, and it was like a slow grind. Like you can, I, I was self-employed and you can see it in my tax returns for the first few years. Like it, so like it goes from nothing to something over a few years. And I stopped doing the care work. Um, 
which I also learned a lot from. And one of the things I learned is that journalism isn't hard. Uh, I mean, you have to, it, it's hard in some ways, but there are harder jobs. Um, and I always try and remind myself that whenever I'm feeling whiny. Um, uh, Why were you drawn to being a care worker? I wasn't drawn to it. It was more that there was an opportunity to do it. And I I wrote about it in the book because mm. it had a huge effect on me. Like I was always left-leaning, um, probably increasingly left-leaning as I got older. Um, and that just really showed to me that the world wasn't structured in a fair way because these people who were, uh, I think I say in the book, are, were virtuosic at caring, you know, who were as specialized and as good at that as any accountant or solicitor or journalist is at what they do. Um, just wasn't being rewarded in the same way. And, and we're, I, I think I actually say in the book that there are people who um, who kind of care just without even thinking, who care for, like, uh, there's this phenomenon of, the, it's usually a woman who will see somebody crying on the bus, a stranger, and go, are you all right, look? you know, whereas everyone else keeps their head down. And those people are uh, actively punished for that outlook financially, you know, whereas... Um, Again, to say something in the book, I, I, I know somebody whose job is to make people in a multinational feel so uncomfortable they quit. And that person is on track to be retired by the time he's 50. So you've got these really skewed, um, you've got these really skewed attitudes in society about what constitutes work that's worth paying for. Um, so, yeah. So, and in my journalism, like, it's really like that, like, I really like feature work that kind of focuses on people who aren't being focused on um, and whose stories we need to hear because I think there's a kind of, there's a real kind of middle Ireland thing where everyone wants to feel like they're discriminated against, you know, where very middle class privileged people want to feel like somehow things are skewed against them. Um, And it's just not true. Mm. What was your your experience in, in the Sunday Tribune like I think you you started off doing business shifts there, was it? Yeah, and then one day, um, uh, I think Quentin Fatrell had been doing the TV review, and he had um, he he had left, and there was a gap to do TV reviews, so they tried me out, and that and I started doing a TV column. I'd been writing features, so they knew I could write kind of cultural, funny cultural stuff, um, but I hadn't done tally reviews before. And I did that for, like, I, I'd say at least 50% of my work for three or four years was the Tribune. And it was in a great, the Tribune was a great paper. I still think it's a huge loss. Because it, um, like, the Tribune discovered really, really good writers constantly and allowed really good writers do their thing. Like, I don't think a lot of papers would have allowed me to write the way I wrote in the Tribune. Um, and even things like Russell Carroll Kelly started in the Tribune. You know, like they, it was a, maybe because it was such an underdog, um, it, was, it, it wasn't risk averse or it didn't seem risk averse. I don't know what your experience was of it. Yeah, I think that's, I think um, the lack of resources um, allowed for not a cavalierness, that's the wrong word, but. You you kind of got a got a sense working there that that 
you should be pushing yourself in as much as you could and, and not just in terms of work rate or anything like that, but just in terms of the writing, I guess. Yeah. Like there was a real, I think there was a real appreciation for style yeah. in the Tribune at that time anyway. Um, and you could just, yeah, it was just a really good paper. Um, and so that's where I would have got my first really big feature pieces would have been in the Tribune um, and kind of reported features, which um, I like, I, I now really like reporting and, and I like kind of long form reporting when I can do it. Mm. Um, but I also like the quick turnaround thing because it kind of keeps you keeps you fresh. Have to do things really quickly. There's a chapter in the book um, which is really kind of hones in on on journalism as a, as a job as as a craft. Um, and I just want to read the first part of it because I think any journalist who reads this will really <laughs> they'll relate. You know, uh, a colleague once spent a long time trying to put together a piece about people affected by a particularly tragic scenario. She was finding it hard to locate interviewees who were willing to talk. One day she came into the office and told me that she had finally, through hard work, found another instance of this terrible circumstance. So we high-fived. Are we bad people? I thought almost instantly. I worry about this all the time. Uh, It's a very (laughs) uncomfortable and real um, picture that you paint there, Patrick. Um, And one of the things that... that, uh, I find um, with that conundrum is how do you avoid the hardness? Because I know myself, you know, when I started in the Tribune as a news reporter and I was doing Strictly News and then for various reasons um, moved away from that. Uh, But one of the things that I find myself slipping into a little bit anytime I'm I'm kind of going back to... uh, anytime I go back to a more news sphere, let's say, is that hardness comes back. And it's something that I think you really actually need as a news reporter, but it's something that I, as I get older, I'm very uncomfortable with. I don't know what you, what your opinions are on that. Maybe I'm just thinking too much about it or something. No, um, that, that essay kind of goes into all that. Like I, I think that it's, it's really beholden on people who have a platform to constantly interrogate the power ratio between them and the person they're interviewing. And I kind of talk about it in that piece. Like it, it, it's sometimes like I maybe overly torturously, I worry about this sometimes when I'm like, I am interested in, in people in difficult situations, um, vulnerable people, homeless people. I'm interested in presenting their stories. And I'm also in, like, I'm also aware that there's a conundrum in that because they're not in a position to present the stories themselves. So you need an intermediary, a journalist um, to present them. And sometimes it's in the context of another story. You know, you might be reporting something else and some of the people you happen to talk to, you realize as you're talking to them are quite vulnerable. So you have to make calls sometimes about, you know, like I will not, if I think this is bad for the person, I will not do it. Um, But then you have to balance you have a job as a journalist and your responsibilities to the reader but you also have a responsibility to your subject and balancing that can be it can be tricky um and i think the hardness and i like to think i don't have that hardness 
accept in that intro. Like I think um uh I think the hardness is when people forget that they need to be thinking about both things all the time. That um it's not just about uh the article at the end of the day. It's also about, you know, your su- the subjects of of the piece. Um so I um like I talk in the book, like there's definitely there's people who can look after themselves, like politicians, business people, yeah. celebrities. And I don't have any qualms about, you know, if they say something that makes themselves look bad, they should know better. Like I've sympathy for them on a human level, um, but it doesn't worry me that much. Um, whereas when you're, and you've probably, you've definitely been in the situation, you know, when you're interviewing somebody and you kind of end up going, you know what, I don't I think I shouldn't use your real name and they want mm. to use the real name <laughs> but you're mm. like go and you have to kind of this discussion where you go or where I go um I think you might regret but you know and I and I and I like and I think it's important that journalists do pull back occasionally and go um is this fair to the person I'm interviewing or like I I go over and back about this all the time like and, and then sometimes I really really worry about a piece and it comes out and I'm really worried and the person I was worried about thinks loves it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm worried that I've kind of misrepresented. I worry about, you know, misrepresenting people by mistake or getting people in trouble in ways I hadn't anticipated because you are, journalists are in a privileged position. Now I know, and and staff journalists like myself because I have a salary, um, like I, I think there's also Another problem, which is a lot of journalists are in precarious situations now themselves because freelancing doesn't pay as well as it used to. And, um, yeah, there's all these, like, even I could go on, I could waffle about this for ages, like, even the context of my TV review column. Like, when I was a younger journalist and I had less security and I was freelance, it felt I was a bit harder in my reviews. And then at a certain point, there's, um, I realized that the power balance had changed a bit. And now I was a quite a comfortable journalist in a mainstream paper. And that what was kicking up now was kicking down. You know, that the, my, my, the power balance had changed. There's a bit in, um, Jeff Reed Stuart Lee's, uh, collection of stand up shows. Yeah. Uh, what, um, oh, I have it. I'm actually looking at, I think I have somewhere here. It's, it's, is it the one with the really long title? What's it called? I can't even remember. All I remember is that uh, the best thing about it is the footnotes are huge. Yes, it's yeah, so yeah. There's like, sometimes there's like three lines and there's a footnote and the footnote's way longer than the, the actual text. And the footnotes act like little meta commentaries on the stand-up. And there's a bit, and I can't even remember who it regards, but it was a joke about another comedian. And he said there was a point when people stopped laughing as hard at that joke. And he realized, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he realized that that was because when he started telling the joke, this other comedian was way more famous than him. But something had changed, and now he was more famous than the comedian. So it wasn't as funny anymore because he was actually kind of kicking down. Um, at, at these power, I think, like this, you know, like intersectional feminism is all about this, you know, like inter- interrogating your power in relation to the people you're interacting with. Mm. You know? um, 
And I think that's an important thing journalists should do. That's a long rambly way of No, for sure. I, I wonder um, with your, oh, sorry, I just dropped my phone. Um, I wonder with your own writing, you know, that thing that I was saying at the start that like this particular, um, it's not a particular turn of phrase because your, your, your writing is very varied, but I think it's a particular ability or capacity to just draw out these amazing metaphors and, you know, kind of surreal parallel versions of events that end up telling the truth about the actual event um or or thing that's happening on a screen or or whatever um you know this is this is something that people that your readers respond to again and again and again um it's it's difficult i would imagine to to say well this is how i do that but do you find yourself you know thinking in sentences you'll eventually put on the page or watching something and it automatically gets pulled through a diff- a filter, like a, a, you know, a multicolored filter in your head that you'll then um, use or how do, how are you processing uh, in that moment? Or, or is it literally when you, when, when you sit down at a keyboard and it's coming out your fingers? No, it's, it's often does kind of arrive into my head, but after me watching loads of stuff, so like there'll be a um, how I am in the column is a slightly heightened version of who I am because uh, it is actually I've realized over the years it's developed into a kind of persona, but it is a kind of reflection of how I think, you know, um, uh, and what um, I've realized over the years is I, I kind of need to feel certain that no one else has thought of this angle, which is, Mm. um, and I need to actually have made myself laugh, you know, uh, where watching the show, I think of something and and I laugh and I go, okay, that is kind of funny. And then I try and elaborate on it. I guess kind of like if you're writing a sci-fi short story, you see how far you can elaborate the joke or the metaphor. Um, And I, this is another thing I can get really nerdy about. I'm kind of amazed at how comic writing, if you look at good comic writing, whether it's like P.G. Woodhouse or Douglas Adams, it's kind of amazing how you can get the timing. Like, you know, the, they talk about timing and comic, comic delivery, Yeah. you know, for a, an actor or a stand-up. You can do a lot of that in rhythm and punctuation. So I kind of tend to, I don't, I, I'm not somebody who writes everything in a flow. I kind of write in chunks and then I patch it together and then I, then I go through it again and again and I refine the, um, uh, I refine the rhythm of the sentences and often I'll, I'll often have placeholder jokes, you know, like there's the rule of threes thing, you, you know, where you go blah, 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 and blah, blah. <laughs> and I might have one, only one of those might be good initially, but I know for the rhythm you need three and mm. I might be, I go back, like I'll go and I'll do other things, other work I have to write. Then I'll come back and I'll go through the column again and, I'll, and I might add new ones of those. Um, like it doesn't come out, like the, the comic impetus that makes me laugh often just comes into my head. But the column, sometimes they come out fully formed, but usually it's like a, a process of refining them over a day, you know. Um, but I, lo- like, I love comic writing. And I am kind of constantly amazed. And I'm one of these, like some people don't like to analyze the stuff they do or the form they, they make. 
but I'm a nerd for seeing what works in other people's stuff. You know, like actually going, this is really funny because this word is here. Like Alan Partridge is the classic example. Like if you, I loved the two Alan Partridge books. Um, and loads of it is like you look at a sentence and you go, it's a funny sentence, but this word makes it a really funny sentence. Just this, like the, the concept of the joke might be one thing, but it's the addition of this one Partridgean adjective makes it really hilarious. Um, so, yeah. Is that, is Has that there really? ever been anything that you filed where who who do you who's your direct editor? Is it Hugh? Hugh is my direct editor. Hugh Lennon, okay. Has there any bit ever been anything that you filed that he's responded like what the fuck? Like you can't <laughs> you can't what what are you talking about? <laughs> it's happened um it's happened rarely, like every now and again. It was, it's kind of gas different papers like I, I, I was doing the, a column for the Herald for a while and I think because of all the crime stuff they do they really legal the hell out of everything <laughs> and uh, so I was doing the same kind of, and to be fair to the Herald it was the same kind of column as I did in the Tribune and now doing the Times but um, I remember getting a phone call one day from the lawyer going um, I had a I was reviewing radio and it was Joe Duffy had a show about Bono's peacocks were going all over Docky, annoying neighbors. And I had a line about uh, tax-friendly peacocks. And the phone call from the lawyer was, now, I know this sounds stupid, but could you just make it clear that you mean they're avoiding tax, not evading it? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, no problem. So legally taxable to the peacocks. But... uh, uh, the now fully tax compliant peacocks. <laughs> so, so that was one example. I remember, um, like every now and again, I do push a joke too far. And I remember occasionally in the Tribune, when I pushed a joke too far, they'd let it go right through. And then I'd read it on the Sunday and I'd go, oh, that is too far. I wish they'd pulled me up on that. Like occasionally with things like, um, like I, I've softened in a lot of ways. Like I, I occasionally threw in some really blasphemous stuff in the Tribune and now I kind of feel like that's again it's the power ratio thing I think for people who believe that's just me you know Um, yeah so I I mean I think like pushing things too far was very much a characteristic of the Tribune and I think it's funny that you might you said blasphemy stuff there right yeah yeah because I think I remember purposefully writing really blasphemous things as well to get them through yeah. And I think there was probably like in also like colored by a period where there was like loads of discussion about like Dermot O'Hearn and his blasphemy. Yeah, it was that period I, I, in the Tribune too. And I think I was, yeah. it was that kind of, it was a, it was like a provocation so, <laughs> because of that blasphemy though. But I guess where I've changed is I got a really nice letter. I, I had something vaguely blasphemous in an Irish Times column in the last few years. And I got a postcard from this like really nice woman going, I really like your columns, but I'm also a deep believer in God. And I found this kind of hurtful and I felt really bad because it was like, like, I guess it's, it's about the power thing again. Like I really dislike the Catholic church institution, but a huge, um, a huge respect for individual believers who do charity work and are active in their communities and, uh, and sometimes when I was kicking at one, I was accidentally getting collateral damage with the others. 
So there was there was stuff like that. I don't. I'd a piece it. I think I'd a piece. I did another thing in um, a column that when Lawrence was my editor, that Lawrence thought was too far. Where I had this like thing about um, Anton Deck presenting um, the Queen uh, the Queen's birthday celebration, mm. and I went just mad. I had great fun writing that piece, but at one point. I got an email from Lawrence that was basically going, you're basically implying here that the Queen kills people. <laughs> <laughs> we can't just <laughs> You got her with a, da- a blood-strewn dagger in her fist, so I'm removing this line, if that's okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess, I guess that isn't true. <laughs> um, the rhythm of working as a journalist uh, can be quite destructive, I find. Yeah. What effect has ha- has a lifestyle of, of deadline-driven work had on you? That's partly why I, I kind of started writing the book. And I and I kind of started doing extracurricular writing like a few years ago with like trying to write short stories and things as well. Uh, because I realized um, on the one hand, you're in a constant state of slight anxiety. Like um, I don't think people who are not journalists realize, like I, I talk to people friends in completely different professions who are incredibly stressed because they've like one deadline in the month, you know, yeah. and, and when you've got like two or three or four or news journalists, even more like a week, um, like I, or they'd send me off to cover things in Britain and I'd be filing a thousand words a day, you know, um, like there's a, there's a high level of anxiety that comes with that. And I don't know if that's necessarily good for your nervous system over time. Um, it's it's good for your productivity, but not great for your nervous system. Um, and then then I also started to worry that I was incapable of writing stuff without deadline, which is partly why I kind of branched off a few years ago to do some other things where there was no pressure, where I just went, but I wanted to produce and see if I could still produce things without an editor going, we need this tomorrow morning. Um, because um, cause it, it is kind of... It's 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 slightly addictive too. Like you kind of like I don't know how I don't know how you find it. Like there's a there's a weird uh, there's a virtuous and a vicious circle involved. Like on the one hand, it's making you produce, uh, but on the other hand, it's making you slightly addicted to that stress level. Mm. How how do you find it? I think in like I think that it's it's a rhythm that I used to thrive on. You know, in my twenties, let's say. Um. I think in recent years, yeah, that, that, you know, what you're saying there about the impact on your nervous system, I, I, yeah, (laughs) I mean, I think that like, I don't think it's any accident that my anxiety has increased an awful lot in the last few years when, you know, it's more or less like the guts of 20 years that I've been working to deadlines. Yeah. Um, and also never, you know, I suppose the work is is constantly going on in your head as well. Um, whatever that, you're doing in your off time, and and it kind of doesn't really stop. Like um, like a lot of my work would turn up in the paper on a Saturday, and it makes Saturday slightly stressful because you're going to get. I'm sure Mondays are slightly stressful for you because your column's in, and you don't know the response you're going to get for stuff. You know, um, so so you it kind of hangs over and there's, and you're also thinking all the time, like particularly when you're um, like, I'm a less newsy journalist generally, like my, 
what draws me to stuff is narratives and stories. And um, I think again, I think I said in the book that I'm sure my editors wish I had more of a news sense. But but you still get sucked into what's happening now and wanting to know what's happening now and and feeling like it's your job to be you know aware and have the radio on and look at Twitter. Um, when actually you probably don't really need to be doing all these things all the time, but there's this feeling you should be. Yeah, I think that the feedback aspect of it, because that's changed so much in recent years that, you know, before social media became such a dominant part of the discourse, I guess you could just, you know, something would be on a page and that that's where it lived and that was it. But now it's like, I know certainly from my perspective, you know, you wake up on a Monday and it's like loads of people screaming at you on Twitter about, you know, everything that's wrong with what you've said. Um, I think when you're doing that year in, year out, it's probably like, and if you don't want to develop that very hard armor, you know, yeah. it, it does have an impact. Because I think the hard armor because I, I think that to do our job well, you still have to be really open to people. Yeah. And if you kind of put that hard armor up, up I think you stop hearing people properly. Um, or you miss kind of nuances and things. But um, I'm also, I think I'm also don't get as much, well, women get a lot more hassle. Um, we know that uh, from their stuff. And I have no idea what sort of, repressive effect all that social media shouting is having on really good journalism from journalists who just don't want to do it anymore. Mm. What do you want to do in journalism that you that you haven't done yet? I'd like to do, um, if I could think of a theme, I'd like to do a book of reporting. Like I listen a lot to, do you ever listen to Long Forum? Yes. It's really good. Like it's, I, I only discovered it in the last, Rosita Bolton told me about it. And over lockdown, I've just been listening to it constantly. And it kind of makes you ambitious because they're talking to all these granted really well-resourced American journalists who are getting to spend six months on one story. And, um, but I, so that, that like, I, I would like to do something ambitious and long form. And I'm also much more aware than I was when I was younger, that there's stories everywhere. It's just whether people have the resources and time to, to work on them and dig them out. Um, like, I think uh, because of resource issues, one of the problems with Irish and British journalism, it's not just Irish journalism, um, is that everything is very much tied to that news cycle in a way that in an ideal world, we'd be resourcing journalists to kind of dig on a longer term basis into stories. Um, and I'd love to be involved in that. Like you look at shows, you look at things like Spotlight, you know, and go, mm. oh, wouldn't it be amazing if like newspapers in Ireland had those kind of investigative reporting divisions um, to go in, go in for the long haul. Oh, for sure. Um, and I think that, I guess, feature writing can sometimes feel like your own division you know that because yeah. you're drawing from so many different things and you're spending so much time on it and you can shape something you know your yourself in the way that you see it in a weird way yeah and um i've kind of 
it's kind of interesting how the different things have an eff- different effects on me. Like reporting has been good for me as a person, like because, um, because listening to people has to affect you over time when you kind of ask people questions. And, and because I have, I suppose I've got my book now and I've got the column to write my funny stuff in, the more uh, kind of feature reporting I do, the more I take myself out of the story. Um, because people's stories are fascinating and everyone is, um, I mean, it's hard to pitch kind of some stories because sometimes like, I just kind of go, there's so many interesting people out there, you know, and the thing I love when I report, um, it's often kind of almost beside the point of what the report should be about. It's like people's turns of phrase and the way, um, the way, the way nobody is, a nobody's a cliche. Like when you actually go out and talk to people, there are very few stock characters, you know, and, and I think sometimes there's a perception out there that, you know, all Brexit voters are like this and all Remain voters are like this and everyone who supports Sinn Féin is like that and everyone who supports Fine Gael is like this. And actually you go out and you start talking to people on the streets and people have the most complex um, personal ways of looking at things. You know, they might ostensibly look like they take a certain box, but then you're talking to them for five minutes and they say something about their lives that blows you away. And and actually, then the other thing is that nobody, most people don't seem to know what's interesting about their lives. So they, they kind of talk to you and then they throw in an aside and it's insane. You know, you go, could you tell me more about that, please? Like, I'd love to be given just free reign sometimes to go and, you know, to go talk to people for six months and come back with stories. Well, moving beyond cliches, uh, definitely not ticking boxes and always full of amazing asides. Okay, uh, let's do your stupid idea is your book. I loved it so much. Um, I think I was texting you from the very annoyingly from the first couple of pages, uh, quoting it back to you, which I'm sure was. (laughs) It was great. um, Great <laughs> which I'm sure was not annoying at all and uh, thanks so much for taking the time out um, you can read Patrick of course in the Irish Times and uh, thanks for the chats Patrick always a pleasure thank you Una thanks for having me on <laughs>